This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Priyanka, I appreciate you coming on the podcast again. Uh, and as I said before we started recording, but I'll say it again, what we're about to cover for everyone listening is something that, you know, my fiance always brings or sheds light on. Uh, and more recently, I've paid attention to it as a man. Uh, and I'll go ahead and, and just provide a very quick intro. So for folks listening, Priyanka Jane is the co-founder and CEO of Evie. Evie is a company based in New York that's on a mission to radically reinvent how we understand and treat the female body, starting with the vaginal uh, microbiome, which is super important. We'll, we'll talk about you know the health tests that you provide, which is the first ever home kit. But more importantly, I also want to cover this from the perspective as a male uh, and the differences in how we are treated when we look at the male body and the female body and the differences between the two. So to start off, thank you again for doing this. And it's a pleasure to have you on. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for having me again. I'm so excited to be here. And I think you touched on so many really important things. Uh, I actually come at this problem from a background in the data science and AI world and had always been really curious about ways that we could actually use data to make the world a more fair and equitable place, um, which is actually not intuitive. If you actually think about the way that data science works, a lot of times you're actually codifying biases that exist in our society today. And I was really curious about ways we could use technology to do the opposite and started very much in the hiring space, actually trying to make the hiring process more fair and equitable. Um, But over the past two years, uh, I think everyone was thinking more about healthcare than usual, given the state of the world. Um, I was dealing with a myriad of my own kind of mysterious health problems. And as I started to do some of my own research, I you know, realized that women actually weren't required to be in clinical research in the U.S. until 1993, which I don't know about. Did you know that? that that's the stat I heard on the podcast. I wanted you to say it, but that I literally like you could see my eyes in the elevator and people are like, why are you so shocked? What are you listening <laughs> to today? You know, <laughs> no, it's crazy. And actually, for the 30 years before that, women actually weren't allowed to be in clinical research at all. And I'll clarify, it's reproductive age women because of two things, really. One is the variability of our sex hormones that were considered to be a variable that you couldn't control for in research studies. And the second reason being like, what if we did something to affect women's reproduction? And because of those two things, we decided that those outweighed the benefits of having women in research. And that led us to a lot of diagnostic and treatment protocols that are frankly designed on middle-aged, mid-sized white men. And we've kind of just forever assumed that women are small men. And it turns out that that's not true. And there's a lot of more interesting complexity that's sitting in our bodies and that could help us do so much of a better job predicting risk of disease, diagnosing it, treating it in a much more personalized fashion. You know, it's funny because the first time I I actually started talking about this with with my fiance was I remember uh, really promoting intermittent fasting and I was like really into it, you know, and, and I still believe in the benefits, but here's the caveat. She went ahead and she's a psychologist in training. So obviously very astute and, and very um, critical at times, yeah. like, deservingly so. So she, you know, she, she kind of digs into the research as it relates to, to the female body and, and the anatomy. And she said that the, the, the same benefits that, you know, impact men is not necessarily the same for women. And there actually could be negative yeah. consequences on hormones and, and other, exactly. other items. Exactly. And I think it's, you know, of course it's, 
we should be looking to the scientific literature always when we're making decisions. But I think it's so important to call out the caveats, right? And when we say something is universally beneficial or not beneficial, really the next question should be for who, right? And for who was that studied for? And for so long, the answer to that was, like I said, middle-aged, mid-sized white men. And it's not like, you know, we passed this law in 1993 and then everything was fixed, right? It turns out that to this day, women are on average diagnosed uh, four years later than men across 770 diseases. So this problem very much still exists today because so many of our ways of understanding what health and disease mean are based on the male body and not the female. Why do you think it's still a, a gradual problem? Like, obviously, it's progressing, you know, but why do you think that still is? Don't they just, can't they split them in different sample sizes, an example, or specialize the sample size? Of course. Yeah. And I mean, it's amazing now that the law has passed and we're actually seeing other countries. I think the UK is even a few steps ahead of the US in thinking about inclusivity and research. But it's hard, right? We have to go back and redo all of our research on everything that we understood about the female, about the body, the human body, period. Right. And, you know, one of the, the most common examples used in this topic is heart disease. Right. And a lot of the symptoms that we're told to look out for, whether it's for a heart attack or other heart symptoms, are actually the way that heart problems manifest in men. But the way that they manifest in women, for example, is actually really different. And what's hard is that not only do you have to go back and restudy these topics, but then you also have to go back and retrain doctors. Right. And doctors who went to school five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, they were taught a lot of things in medical school that are actually like, we've uncovered a lot of new things now and figuring out how do we continue to push the research forward and keep everyone up to date with new ways of diagnosing and treating um, is really hard, right? We're all, we're all human. And it's hard to, to keep track of all of those moving pieces. That's actually a really good point. So you're, the premise is basically you have to go back because the data has to be accurate enough and also ha- have enough years to really justify its conclusion almost. Is that totally? And it's yeah, not only, I mean, there's point. so much new research happening and the new research is being done on men and women, which is amazing, right? But we have to go back and say of all of the processes that we designed, which of them are actually working for women and which ones aren't. And I actually mm. think in the 90s, uh, after this law was passed, I think eight out of the 10 prescription drugs that were pulled off the market were pulled off because they had negative effects on women that hadn't been previously researched, right? And I think that like that was in the first 10 years and we're continuing to discover new things, maybe not prescription drugs to pull off the market, but maybe diagnosis protocols that we shouldn't be using on women or other treatment protocols that are way more efficacious on women than in men. Um, and those things, frankly, we're still discovering. And part of what we're really focused on at Evi isn't just, you know, redoing the old research or pushing forward new research on men and women. It's really saying what are the markers that exist in the female body that are completely different, right? That just didn't exist in the male body at all, but actually could be giving us really important signals about how healthy or sick we are. And obviously our first focus is on the vaginal microbiome, which as you can imagine, does not exist in people who are born as uh, with a male body. So we've never studied it, right? And it turns out that it does have a lot of those markers of health and disease that we're now trying to bring to the forefront um, and make them usable in a clinical setting. I'm really curious, like, because you have the the sort of background, I mean, you went to Stanford, I think you, you had a bachelor's in science data as, as, as you... Right. It, I did w- one of Stanford's interdisciplinary majors that does not mean much outside of the Stanford community. <laughs> but yes, I took a lot of classes between data and CS and also in the design school and in the business school. Um, so a lot of different departments. But yes, focused on data mainly in my career. 
data and, and you were actually you were really involved in, in venture capital communities i know you you sat on the yeah. board of, of stanford's vc community so curious like when when did the idea for every if you start trickling in your mind was it a personal pain point it seemed like that was one case study but did you start seeing a consensus that was much larger than just your own for sure such a good question I mean, so I think it was the confluence of two things. I think, I, so the company I was working on before this, it's an amazing company in New York called Pymetrics. And our goal was to build algorithms that can match people to jobs in a way that was more fair and effective than looking at resumes. And it was really interesting because when I started there, you know, seven years ago, it was actually, interestingly, HR was one of the first uh, departments to start adopting AI at scale in a really regulated industry that was making decisions. And you started to see it happening like wildfire. All of these different HR organizations were adopting a new AI that could help them make their processes more efficient, because I think everyone knew that they were highly inefficient at the time. And AI was this really exciting promise. Um, But with that became a lot of fear, right? Because if you're going to codify the way that we've made hiring decisions, I think the least you can say is that they weren't being made (laughs) very fairly, right? And so Pymetrics, our premise was to say, hang on, hang on, let's actually make sure that we test these algorithms for fairness. Let's make sure that we've designed what an ethical algorithm looks like in this case. And I think, you know, over the past two years, you're starting to see kind of that same change happen in healthcare, where so many different healthcare organizations are adopting data-centric solutions, which is great, right? We should be utilizing the power of data to understand what's going to work for who. But a lot of my fears started to come back of saying, wait, but the fields that we're using to decide how to train an algorithm are based on the male body, right? Not mm-hmm. let alone the, the, the way in which you train the algorithm. You know, there's better ways to do that as well. But even the data itself is so biased because we're just not looking at certain data points, right? You can't determine how important a certain feature is to an algorithm if you don't actually measure it, right? And so mm. our, my question, I, you know, I was like not sleeping at night being like, oh my God, we're watching this huge proliferation of data in healthcare. And who's sitting there thinking about what metrics we should be measuring on the female body and how well are these going to perform on women? Um, and I actually was like, wow, there's maybe a lot of parallels I could pull from HR into healthcare. Who knew? Um, <laughs> and try to bring some of those principles here. And the combination of my own journey of feeling like I never could get answers to what was going on in my own body. I cannot tell you how many doctors told me to drink more water or sleep more, or maybe I was stressed and really was feeling this lack of data And then seeing the proliferation of data-centric systems in healthcare that didn't have a lot of metrics on the female body. And then frankly, reading about the vaginal microbiome, which like all three of them together led me to say like, I might love my job, but I really have to go, (laughs) have to go work on this problem. And and for full transparency, I also, you know, heard you uh, make that reference in terms of like, you know, just go drink water and Full transparency. I've I've done and been there before, and I, I wanted I wanted to mention that because I do think for a lot of men and maybe women as well. I mean, who knows? Um, I think fall into that trap, you know. And and it's upsetting when I look back at how I used to be, especially with my fiance. I mean, it kind of hurts me to think that I used to be this way because it's very insensitive in terms of actually trying to help. But sometimes when you don't know better, that's kind of your default <laughs> mechanism. And right? I think it's, that's just. It's such a great way to put it because I really don't think that anyone in the medical system, doctors, researchers, et cetera, have malintentions. Like nobody is not, of course, everyone's trying to help you. And I think part of the challenge is that we just haven't had the tools in the past to do a better job. We haven't had the data in the past to do a better job. And like, we're really trying to accelerate the pace at which we develop that data and help doctors be able to help their patients better. Because I really 
I really do believe they want to do a better job and we just don't have the tools. And before we get into the sort of technical aspect of, of how it works and, and the data that it provides, if we just take a quick step back, how would you define vaginal microbiome to, to someone <laughs> who may have never you know, read on, read on it? Of course, of course. Okay, so most people have heard of a microbiome, whether it's the one in your gut, the one in your right. mouth, the one on your skin, right? Essentially, it means a community of microbes, typically most commonly bacteria and fungi that exist in a certain part of your body, right? That's basically what a microbiome means. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the one in your vagina, um, if you think about the vagina, actually, overall, its role in the female body, right? It's essentially the structural connection between the outside world, which is full of tons of different pathogens and microbes, you name it, and a lot of our most important reproductive organs. And it turns out, essentially, that we've evolved with this community of microbes that live in our vagina that do a lot more than just, like, hang out there. It turns out that, essentially, when your vaginal microbiome is in a healthy state, it's dominated by certain protective microbes, the most common of which are called lactobacillus, if you've ever heard of that. Sometimes you see it in yogurt and it's different species, actually, but it's called lactobacillus. And the reason it's so protective is because it actually lets out hydrogen peroxide, lactic acid, and makes the vaginal environment too acidic for any type of pathogens to get in. Right. So what happens is it's essentially serving as this structural pathway. And then as you kind of interact with the world and microbes come around your vagina, what happens is that those protective microbes are keeping it so acidic that they aren't able to survive or thrive in your vaginal environment. And that protects you from any pathogens making it up into your reproductive system. Does that make sense? Interesting. Yeah. So it's almost 100%. like this local immune system that you have down there that's protecting you from what, what else is out in the world and making sure that you maintain an environment of protective microbes. But for so many women, that breaks down, right? And I always say, like, God forbid women live their lives, whether it's that you have unprotected sex or you have a period that lasts too long or you sit in your swimsuit for too long, your right. pH of your vagina starts to go up. And those healthy microbes that thrive in that low pH acidic environment sometimes start to die off. And when those start to die off, those disruptive pathogens start to be able to come in, take hold on the walls, make a home for themselves. And when that happens, the way in which we experience that as women are some of the most common conditions in women. Like UTI, Exactly, yeah. exactly. Bacterial vaginosis is actually the most common, but like least talked about, and I have a lot of theories for why. Um, hmm. Yeast infections, recurrent UTIs, and those are obviously extremely frustrating infections for all of us who've been there. But on top of that, what we what research has shown time and time again happens is that that breakdown of your local immune system then leads to increased risk for everything from fertility issues to preterm birth to cervical cancer progression to STI acquisition because you're lacking that protective barrier that was essentially acting as your local immune system down there. And that's essentially like what the vaginal microbiome is and then how it kind of plays a role in the things we experience as well as kind of broader health outcomes. Well, that was an amazing explanation. So thank you. Um, <laughs> I just got my 101. I this for, for a job. Don't worry. Yeah, exactly. That's, well, that's why I figured to ask, right? Um, it, it seems to me then like the, the immediate response, if you, if you were to take this, and I remember asking, um, you know, your father, Naveen Jain, who I also had on the podcast, shout out to Naveen. Um, I remember he, he mentioned like how reactive medicine has been. <laughs> Right. It's not it's not necessarily designed to to say, how can we make, you know, Priyanka healthier in the future? So we don't so we prevent you from walking through our doors. It's actually like we need you to walk through our doors so we can medicate you. So in today's design, when someone without Evie walks into hospital and says, hey, there's something going on down there. What, what is the immediate response? Is it antibiotics? Right. I'm assuming. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I think the first thing to think about that's interesting is how do we even decide that there's a problem down there right now in today's world? Um, And there's kind of four things that doctors look at today. One is, do you have symptoms? Which is makes sense, right? You're coming to the doctor, you probably have symptoms. But what's interesting is that up to 84% of women who have vaginal dysbiosis, meaning like they don't have that protective layer anymore, um, are asymptomatic, meaning that we're missing a huge percentage of people who are at risk, but that don't have symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first question that you ask. The second one, and I'm not kidding, is called the WIF test, in which you basically look at if the bacteria smell. And when you talk about reactive healthcare, I mean, we are literally waiting until the bacteria smell before we do something about it. Um, Third is looking under a microscope. I mean, I always say kind of 18th century technology here of, you know, oh, do I see how many different shapes do I see? What am I looking at? Um, And then fourth is looking at pH and pH changes for so many reasons, whether it's semen, menstrual blood, you name it. But basically before those, between those four points, they decide, okay, your vaginal microbiome is disrupted. And then exactly what you said, the treatment right now is antibiotics, which is, as you can imagine, not very effective. Um, And up to 80% of women end up recurring and unable to kind of rebuild that protective vaginal microbiome and end up with these really chronic, debilitating from a physical, emotional, mental health, relational health standpoint, kind of scared to do anything because it's going to trigger an odor or a discharge or a discomfort down there. And we just haven't, in my opinion, invested enough time and energy into a problem that affects our quality of life, our health outcomes, and so many things. And I think it's the perfect example of female healthcare research being left behind. So in that case, so let's say you take the example of someone who's maybe not asymptomatic, like they, they, you know, they recognize they have some symptom. Yeah. Is it at that point that they start engaging with Evie or what, what kind of direction are you taking? Is it from hospital to, you know, the, the patient or patient first? Yeah. Great question. So it's patient first right now. Um, meaning that anyone, whether they have symptoms or they don't have symptoms, anyone who's curious about their vaginal microbiome and the role that it's playing in their health, whether that's because they have symptoms or it's because they're trying to get pregnant and they want to know if any microbes have been shown to be positively helpful or unhelpful with that goal, or you name it. A lot of women going through menopause, for example, have vaginal symptoms. Um, Whatever the motivation is for someone to come to us, they can order the test directly. Um, We then do something called metagenomic sequencing, which is where we actually sequence the entire genome of all of the microbes that we find, which enables us to then share back with you the entire composition of your vaginal microbiome, right? So what percent of those microbes are healthy and protecting you? What percent of them are disruptive? Um, Which of them have been shown in research to have relationships positively or negatively to health outcomes, right? There's certain microbes that have been shown to increase someone's chances of IVF working or decrease someone's chances of IVF working and helping someone understand, you know, how might this microbiome be contributing to your symptoms and then goals that you care about? And then really what, what can the next step of what you do be, right? Whether it's everything from supplements to lifestyle changes, educating people about the role of sex in the vaginal microbiome, of birth control, of their periods, period products, you name it, kind of custom to them. And then if they do need to see a doctor, they do have symptoms, they do have pathogens, helping women really advocate for themselves at the doctor, right? A lot of our customers are telling us, you know, my doctor told me it's in my head or that they don't believe this is real. And so helping them know what to ask for and how to talk about their symptoms so that they're able to get the care that they deserve. Does it ever surprise doctors? Like, let's say you show up with this kind of data they might not even know or be aware of. 
you know, because I'm sure there there may be a bit of ego that plays in, which is wrong. And I'm not I'm not saying that they probably will do that, but what if it does come up and they're like resistant to the information? Totally. And we definitely see both sides of this, right? We have doctors who are, you know, have seen you for the 13th time and are dying for more information about how to help you who are so excited to have comprehensive data. And we actually like share all of the research studies behind them. And for doctors who are interested, we provide a lot of information and context. But of course, there are doctors who, to their credit, I mean, they weren't trained about this in medical school. We didn't know what half of these microbes were even 10 years ago, right? And so they look at these words and they're like, when I was trained or when I read, even today is up to date on, you know, these different conditions, I don't see any of these words. So this must not matter. And to their credit, like, yes, we still have to prove a lot of the clinical utility of this, but we're trying to surface the best research because I don't think it's fair to ask women to wait, right? Like when you're suffering from this, it is miserable. And trust me, my whole team has been there. We've all been there. And Mm -hmm. we think that where there is research, we should be giving access to women and helping them understand what we know, what we don't know, and make the best decisions for themselves between them and their doctor, right? And we're just trying to provide people with the best information to do so that neither doctors or women have had access to in the past. Yeah, I think what you just said there is also really critical, just to kind of peel the onion. And um, this also relates, uh, weirdly enough, to even like, you know, the the BLM movement that happened recently, the, the whole the whole point of not making excuses and and you know, being oblivious almost to what we should be doing. I think that that that, that was one of my biggest takeaways from obviously this conversation, uh, as well as what, what's been happening more on, on the racial aspect in the U.S., but it's kind of similar, you know. To totally. I think just thinking of, I mean, I mean, to bring, there's actually a very interesting intersection of these two things, which is that Black and Hispanic women are actually far more likely to have a disrupted vaginal microbiome based on our current definitions of disrupted. And we have like no good answers for why that is or how to do anything about it. Um, And so we actually see a disproportionately higher number of our customers who are from much more diverse backgrounds and who are looking for answers because systems have been leaving them behind, right? And saying, you know, these are the only tools we have. Take the antibiotic for the 13th time. And it's been really exciting to see a lot of those women decide that like they deserve better and they're going to take things into their own hands and build community around it. Um, And it's been amazing, frankly, to see how many women want to talk about their vaginal health. I think like we just kind of had an era of people becoming okay talking about their periods and menstruation. And I think that we're finally entering a time where people can say like, I have discharge or I have odor and I don't know what to do about it. Um, And it's been really actually amazing to see our TikTok actually has blown up and it's, you know, just kind of laughing about all of the experiences that we've all had. And I think it speaks so much to how prevalent these problems are, but how little we've been able to actually talk about them in the past. Yeah. I mean, I I like your approach to be honest, because it seems more inviting, you know, even as a guy who's, I would say gradually learning more about this, um, you know, and willingly. So, I mean, I, I, this is, I find this really interesting and I think it's important to get the message out, but I think adding humor is important, of right? Course. It, it kind of invites a broader community than maybe your target audience of women who really ha- have a, a need for the, for the product. Of course. And I think, you know, of course we want to sell the test and give people access to the data and work in the healthcare system. But we also want to demystify this topic and we want to destigmatize it. And we spend actually a ton of time and financial resources um, on educational content and like actually 
helping women get the answers they deserve on these really common problems. Because as you can imagine, when someone feels symptoms down there, the first place they go is not the doctor or the hospital, it's to Dr. Google. And a lot of the things that show up for them are not scientifically backed and don't really help them. And it's companies pushing wipes Mm. that make your vagina smell like flowers or wash your vagina with this. And guess what? It sells really well because people are really self-conscious about that. But guess what? It's making your vaginal microbiome worse, right? And so helping women really understand their bodies, um, while it might not be selling a product, is really important to our mission. Interesting. What, What do you see in terms of growth? I think you touched on this a little bit in the beginning. But, you know, you're obviously starting with vaginal microbiomes now. Is is the intention to stick to the female audience even down the road, but maybe different lines of, of features? Is that kind of the thinking? That's a great question. I think for us, like our focus as a company is really to discover and leverage female specific biomarkers, right? And to understand what are those markers that exist in the female body that are kind of floating around. I always say when you get your blood drawn, it's not like it's sitting on the counter in the tube being like, ask me about my vitamin D or what is my cholesterol, right? We decided to ask those questions because we decided that those were important metrics to track. And what Evie is so curious about is what are the other metrics that exist in the female body that would equally be important to understanding our health or disease, but that we've never actually measured before, right? And so obviously the vaginal microbiome hopefully I've convinced you is a relevant and obvious one to start with, but there's probably so many other ones. And we always wonder that, right? What are those markers that are sitting in our bodies? How could we be measuring them and educating women on their own bodies and then proving to the healthcare system that these are metrics we should be tracking? And I'd be lying if I said, you know, I knew exactly how that was going to manifest. I think right now we're very much following the customers, following the doctors, following the science and trying to make sure that, you know, everything that we do is centered in, you know, scientifically backed information that we can provide women to have a healthier life. Um, And I think there's a lot of ways that can go. We get asked in in cases where you're really going with this, we get asked a lot about partner treatment and how can my partner be involved in my vaginal health? Of course, it's not very well studied, but that's actually something we um, are actively working on to help women better understand the role of their partners. Gotcha. Well, I have just one more for you, and uh, I want to tie this a little bit to Naveen. Uh, and obviously, I think you grew up in an entrepreneurial household. Uh, for folks who don't know, you know, Naveen is also working on the microbiome side, but more so on the gut aspect with a with a company called Viome. Um, you know, he's invo- he's involved with XPRIZE. He's, he's done a bunch of things that are really exciting. You can listen to the podcast if you're really interested. But curious, how, how did that affect your outlook later in life when you were thinking about entrepreneurship? Was it more visceral growing up with that kind of influence early in your life? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, so many amazing entrepreneurs that I know also had entrepreneurial parents, whether, you know, they started a bakery or they started a tech company, you name it. I've, I do think that I mean, I actually, someone should run a study on this. There must be some numbers that show that you're more likely to be an entrepreneur if you have a parent that is. Um, I think really what it did for me is, and I've only realized recently in my life how much I feel this way compared to other people, which is like, you know, this question of like, why you, or like, why could you do something? I think was less of a question to me, right? Because I saw my dad time and time again, say like, oh, I want to land a rocket on the moon. And he was like, we're going to figure out a way to do that. Or I want to, you know, do this crazy thing with the gut microbiome and we're going to do that. And I think this, like, there's just a lack, a a lesser fear of failure. Of course, there's still fears. And of course, things are still scary. But I think the 
appetite for taking risk and the fear of like, I can't do this. Um, I give a lot of credit to my dad and that he definitely instilled in all of us that, you know, you can do something. And if you really believe in something, there is no reason why not you? He always used to say, if you think it's impossible, it is for you. Um, and I think that that type of mentality was definitely instilled in me at a very young age. What advice would you give to an aspiring woman founder that maybe didn't grow up in an entrepreneurial household? Yeah, I think that especially in, in every industry, there are so many ways in which our perspective on the problem is so important. And I think that it's so easy to tell yourself, you know, and frankly, a lot of the insecurities I have are that I'm not a doctor, right? And of course, people love to ask me, are you a doctor? Who's the doctor? And I mean, thankfully, we have an amazing, amazing board of doctors who do make all of the kind of medical decisions about what Evie does. But I think it could have been really easy to say to myself, don't start this company because you're not a doctor. And I think, you know, the parallel for that, whatever it is for you is realizing like you have something to add, right? Like mm. the thing I can bring to this is an extreme passion and frustration for the problem and the interest of how data can be a solution. But I by no means had the medical or scientific expertise to be the person to start this company. And I think breaking down the barriers for yourself of, oh, I have to be an expert in this way to do that. Um, it's just not true because to solve these massive problems take a, takes a village and it takes everyone from the people who are passionate about the problem to the activists, to the lobbyists, to the, <laughs> the healthcare system, the policymakers, the tech creators. Um, so no matter what your specialty or role is, it plays a role in actually changing these problems. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.